This morning's scripture, Romans the ninth chapter, the first five verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, as we take these moments to look at your chosen people, we pray that your Spirit would speak to our hearts and minds in a way like no other, and that you would help us, Father, in being able to understand and somewhat comprehend a very difficult chapter of your word. Father, we pray that you help us to put aside any preconceived notions that we may have. That we view you according to your word and not according to our desires or to our preconceived thoughts or the way we want you to be. And that after seeing who you are, you are glorified. And Father, I pray this morning that the words I speak be not mine, but be yours and bring you your right glory. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as you all are aware, this morning we begin a beautiful new chapter in the book of Romans. And as I told you last week, at the end of last week, this chapter will teach us, hopefully, a lot of things. This chapter will stretch our understanding and cause us to question what we have believed in the past. And it's not going to be an easy chapter to understand and embrace and accept. But I hope that we're all willing to to go this way and are open-minded enough to truly try to understand God's Word. Unfortunately, the 20th century and the 21st century church has been a poster child for what I call Christian prostitution. And it is very and has been very sad to watch the church engage in that type of activity. In an attempt to fill pews... We have watered down the Word of God in an attempt to not offend or shock anyone. We change what the Word of God says. God is portrayed and has been portrayed as some sort of glorified Santa Claus. That He's going to give you everything that your secular, earthly heart desires. That the church has changed 
the sovereign, immutable, almighty creator of the universe to some sort of genie in a bottle. Whatever you want, come in here, say it and believe it and it's going to happen. That's the message, unfortunately, of the late 20th, early 21st century church. We have made God into something that He is not, into something that His Word does not tell us He is. Unfortunately, when those results that are promised don't come to fruition, the church loses people. The church has attempted to make their services an entertainment time. An entertainment show for the most part. We turn off all the lights. We've got lights going different directions. We've got bands playing. We've got all kinds of things going on. So you can have your entertainment experience that you would normally get at a nightclub on Friday night, you can have it in the confines of your very own pew. Christian prostitution. We're going to do everything in our power to entertain everyone. To keep you coming back. Because we want a full parking lot. We want everyone to give. But, oh, we're not going to make you feel bad. You're going to leave those places feeling really good about yourself. I'm pretty proud of who I am, really. I just had a wonderful show, listened to great music. They told me that I'm going to be able to get anything that my selfish heart desires when I walk out of here. What worldly person doesn't like that? Everybody does. That's what the world seeks. Christian prostitution. In our churches. Fortunately, I sense a turn. I believe that there is a turn from that toward a conservative church where the entire Bible is taught... And where we know God and who He is based on His Word, not what and who we want Him to be. And I praise God for that. And I pray that, th- that this is this church. Now when you leave here and when you leave these conservative Bible churches, you're not going to feel too good about yourself. Right? Because we know that we shouldn't. Because we see ourselves for truly who we are. And if you ever walk out of my door telling yourself that I'm a pretty good person, I've dropped the ball. I've done something wrong. That is my introduction to Romans 9. And why is it my introduction to Romans 9? Well, I can assure you that Romans 9 is not taught in a lot of churches in today's society. It's not taught because it paints a picture of God that is adverse 
to the one we want to paint in our minds. It doesn't make us feel warm and cuddly inside. But it gives us a true understanding of who God is. The best we can understand it. Many people will tell you that Romans 9 is a chapter that explains God's sovereignty. And it does that. It does that magnificently. But it's more than that. It's more than that. That's not Paul's focus of this chapter. The sovereignty of God and the explanation of the sovereignty of God is a byproduct of what Paul's trying to get across. So before we jump into chapter 9, we must remember from where we came. Chapter 8. Y'all are listening. We came from chapter 8. And throughout chapter 8 and how beautiful it was and how much confidence we got from Paul's words of telling us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can steal our eternity, not even ourselves. And you remember we used the term us, nothing can separate us, and we know who us is because we spent weeks, maybe months, going over that term. You can figure it out by going to verse 28. Those who love God and who are called according to His purpose, 29 and 30. Those He foreknew, those He predestined, those He called, those He justified, and those He glorified. That's the us. That's the group of people that no one can be... No one can separate from the love of God. And so ultimately, Paul's talking about a group of people, right? His people, his chosen, his elect. It's not a new concept. Not a new concept at all. And we've talked about that. Go to the Old Testament. Everyone would understand and agree. Who were his chosen people? The Jews. That's God's M.O. He has a group of people that are His and He is theirs. His entire plan has been about saving that group of people. The Israelites or the Jews. So what is there about chapter 8 that is shocking and new and different? The thing about chapter 8 that would be shocking to the readers at the time is that this group of people that Paul's talking about, he doesn't refer to them as Israelites. And those that have come along, they've always believed that you've got the Israelites and that's God's group of people and those are the ones that he's going to save. And we get through Romans 8 and Paul doesn't even talk about them. He's talking about a different group entirely. That was the shocking thing at the end of Romans 8 whenever you got done reading. There is nothing or no one or nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And people are going to say, well, that's supposed to be the Jews. It's supposed to be them. So how are we to make sense of all this? 
that's precisely the reason for his transition in Romans 9. That's precisely where he's going. He anticipated that question. Where are the Jews? What about the Jews? Are they not the ones that cannot be separated from the love of God? And we're going to find out that's true. But we're going to find out about it in a very different way. So that's why Paul begins to transition. And we start with verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul had just experienced the highest pinnacle in spirituality. The confidence of knowing there's nothing that can ever happen to him, no matter how wonderful or how horrible, that can separate him from the love of God and steal his eternal life, even anything that he would do or would not do. And yet he goes from this pinnacle to this place of great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He even goes to the point where he wished that himself or himself would be accursed for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is the transition. He's talking about the Israelites according to the flesh, the Jews. What about them? He has unending anguish over their spiritual state. Now at the very beginning of this chapter, and I I will warn you, Paul is going to redefine for us what is meant by the term Jew. Okay? That's going to happen. So it gets a little bit confusing. But he's going to redefine for us that we're all Jews. Spiritually. That's what he's going to tell us. And those that were just Jews because of the blood, the DNA in their bodies, not Jews. So whenever we use the term, it can be a little ambiguous from time to time. And so we have to stop and try to figure out exactly what he's saying or who he's speaking about whenever we go through these passages. Right now, he defines it, his kinsmen according to the flesh. DNA. You can trace the DNA all the way back to Abraham. That's who he's talking about. Because later on, as I read earlier, you're going to see all the blessings that those folks had. The patriarchs, the fathers, you know, all the word of God that was given to them and come down through their generations. The actual physical nation or group of people. So he's saying, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of them. This is a very elegant, nice kind way of saying that's where they're at they are accursed and they are cut off because basically paul's saying 
I would trade places with them. They're in that situation. But he does it very, or in a very kind manner, doesn't it? I wish that, that I were accursed. I, I, I could wish that I were cut off from Christ. So clearly these kinsmen of his are accursed, and they, they are cut off from Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So he's giving us the description of the Israelites, those that don't believe in Christ, but have the DNA of Abraham. We'll jump down for a few moments to verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is not by faith. But that Israel, DNA, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So the Gentiles found righteousness, even though they didn't try to find it. The Jews were trying to find righteousness. They were pursuing the law. They didn't get there. We've talked ad nauseum about how we pursue the law, we're never going to make it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works. So they didn't believe that God would provide what He needed to provide to them so that they would be righteous. They believed that they had to do it themselves. They didn't have faith in who was to come, being Christ Jesus. And then something else happens here. There's something that pops up that even makes it more difficult. They stumble. And there's a stumbling stone, which is a prediction from the Old Testament. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's Jesus. It was Jesus. We know the problem the Jews had with Christ, right? That ended up in Him being on the cross. It was the Jews. Their pushing of the Romans, but it was ultimately them. They were the ones, and Christ was the stumbling block. They believed that they could attain righteousness by keeping to the law. They didn't need Jesus. Yeah, they were wrong. They were wrong. Chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. For I bear them witness. He's talking about DNA Jews. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was perfected in Christ and we obtain that righteousness through faith. But he's saying, my brothers and sisters, the Israelites, my DNA relatives, they didn't do that. 
He was a stumbling block to them. They thought they could attain it themselves. They did not trust in God to provide that for them. Sort of like when they were roaming in the wilderness, we looked at in Sunday school this morning. They always wanted God to provide them with something and never thought that He was going to and constantly were angry. They always wanted something that they didn't have and would not trust or believe in God. And so they'd want to take it upon themselves. Israel missed the entire meaning of the law and the entire meaning of Christ. They are accursed because the only one that could save them from being accursed is the one that became a curse on his own, Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So this is one reason why Paul was suffering. While he was intensely crying out and anguished over his brother's and sisters, his kinsmen. Paul is anguished because these people that were in this DNA bloodline of Israelites were not in this group of people that God had chosen. That caused him a great deal of anguish and sorrow. But notice that anguish and sorrow does not lead him to blame God. It never leads him to blame God for that. The blame fell square on the shoulders of the unbelieving Jews. That's where this gets difficult. And we're going to see it get very difficult to try to make it work in our minds. Whenever we have this idea that it is God and God alone who saves, and yet someone is not being saved, we think, who's to blame for that? You can't very well blame someone when it's God that does the choosing and they're not chosen. I hope you can all see the difficulty in that. And how hard it is for us as human beings to grasp hold of that. That's the dilemma that we face and that's the dilemma that we're going to continue to face as we go through this chapter. I'm not going to water it down for you and tell you it's easy to understand because it's not. I can tell you that we're never going to fully understand this. It's just not in our ability. Man's economy and God's economy are two different things. We live in a reality that God created for us, and that's the only reality we know. And I will tell you that that is not God's reality. It is much different from ours. So while we can and we will seek to try to understand it the best we can and make sense of it the best we can, don't get your hopes up that it's going to be fully explained because that's not going to happen. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor His ways our ways, and as higher as His ways are than ours. There are some mysteries that will remain a mystery until we meet Him. 
until we get to ask him all the nuances about his plan. I want you to notice Paul's language. It's as if he is making excuses or wants you to really believe what he's about to say, right? I'm speaking, I'm telling the truth to you in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he makes a big deal that he wants these people to believe him. Why do you think that is? Well, many people believe that Paul was anti-Israel, that he was anti-Jew. We know, we we talked about all of his different journeys. We went through all of his journeys. Paul was an apostle to who? The Gentiles. Even though he himself genetically was a Jew, he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was extremely critical about and towards the Jews. As a matter of fact, they chased him all over the place, didn't they? They were constantly wanting to grab a hold of him to kill him. And they ultimately led to his final demise. In Romans 2.24, whenever we went through that, I have no idea how long ago that was, but it was quite some time. He says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He was telling his own kinsmen, the name of God is blasphemed. They all knew that. But he's saying, you're you're responsible for it. You did it. You're the one that caused it to happen. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No. This really got under their skin. Whenever you have a Jew or an Israelite by DNA telling a kinsman, We're no better off than a Gentile? Oh, you want to get under their skin? Tell them that. They will chase you and try to kill you, which is exactly what they did. For we have already been charged that everyone is under sin, both Jews and Greeks. It is that type of language that make people believe that Paul was anti and anti-Semite. It's what they believed. So through all of that, he wanted the Roman readers to know that was not the case. It was not the case at all. He loved his brothers and sisters. He loved his fellow kinsmen. He had great sorrow. He said, I'm speaking the truth from my heart. I wish that they believed. I have great sorrow for them. My heart hurts because of where they are. Now there are those people that say you cannot feel sorrowful for those who don't believe because it is God that does the choosing. This is absolutely, or smacks in the face of that. It's the opposite. It's antithetic to that whole idea. Paul knows who does the choosing. He knows who's in control of salvation. And yet he has great sorrow in his heart for his fellow countrymen who do not believe. It tears away at his inner being. By saying this, Paul is telling us we can be sorrowful 
We can pray for those who don't believe. We can desire for them to turn and trust in Jesus. For I could wish. Notice those words. He doesn't say, for I wish. For I could wish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, that I could trade places with you. And he makes this statement based on Romans 8, where there is nothing or no one or anything we can imagine that can separate us from the love of God. That's why he doesn't say, I wish I could trade places, or I would trade places. He knows you can't do that. When you are saved, you are saved and you are secure. But he said, if that, was, if that was possible or would have been possible in God's economy, and I know that it's not, that's why he said, I could wish, then I would do it. But because I cannot be separated from the love of God, I know that's not possible. I can't be cut off from him. I'm not going to say that I could. He knows that. He could wish all he wants, but he knows that God's sovereignty with respect to salvation will never change his eternity. So he can't trade places. And yet he's grieving for those he loves. He's grieving for those he loves. And I'm quite certain there are folks in this church that are sitting here this morning that grieves for those you love that wishes this same thing that Paul wishes. I want those I love to be in Christ. I want my brothers and sisters, same DNA. I want my fellow countrymen, countrywomen, to know Him. Yet at the same time, I know who's in charge of it, but at the same time, Paul tells us that we're going to pray for them. We're not going to give up on it. We're not going to avoid prayer because God is sovereign. Conversely, we're going to go to prayer because God is sovereign. And he answers prayer. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul tells us we are to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So we are to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's a tough combination to actually play out in your mind and heart. But that's kind of what Paul's doing here, is it not? He's rejoicing in chapter 8. Nobody's going to steal anybody's salvation. Why? Because God does it, He seals it, He secures it for eternity. Yet I'm sorrowful for those who aren't in that group. And it hurts whenever I know there are those that aren't in that group. So that brings us to another question. What about those that we love now? Those that we yearn to be in that group. Jonathan Edwards has a beautiful quote. With respect to any affection that the godly have, have had to the finally reprobate or those that don't make it. The love of God will wholly swallow it up 
and cause it to wholly cease. Any pain we may be experiencing in this life over a sorrow of someone not knowing God will be entirely swallowed up in the love of God to the point that it will not exist when we make it to glory. Paul's desire, his pain, the anguish that he is feeling or was feeling when he wrote Romans 9.3 is gone. Because it was caught up in being a fleshly human being. But it's not that it's wrong. It's absolutely right. We should have that desire, that anguish, that sorrow, that desire to pray for those who do not know Christ Jesus. Here he says, 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, that is, Israelites, DNA, Jews, that they may be saved. He never stopped praying for them. He never stopped having a desire for them to believe and come to faith. Never. As long as he walked this earth. I think that gives us encouragement. And there were those who did. Paul was an Israelite. But it gives us encouragement in our own lives. And with our own people that we know that are part of our lives and come in and out of our lives that don't know God, that don't know Christ. That it's our heart's desire and we never stop praying for them. Even though it's God's call, we never stop praying for them. We pray for unbelievers because God is sovereign and there is hope. Always. Never give up. As long as they are drawing breath in this life, never give up. He has the power to save at any moment. And we have no idea when that moment may be. It may be when they're seven, when they're 17, 47, 97, 107. God's got a very big imagination. And He loves to use it in a way that brings Him glory. And that's how He does things. We don't pretend to know who's in that group and who's not in that group. But what we do is we pray with sorrowful hearts to those we know do not know the Lord. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank You for being with us. We thank You, Father, that You are in control of salvation, that You are in control of eternity. And Lord God, it is very difficult for our finite minds to grasp and understand and fully comprehend. But Father, let us just trust in You. Give us the strength to know that You're sovereign Know that you're a God of hope and a, and a God of salvation and a God of eternal life. Let us continue to be joyful yet sorrowful for those who don't know you. Let us pray for them 
without ceasing as Paul did for his fellow kinsmen. And that may, through this process, it be for your glory and your majesty and your honor forever. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.